This story I'm about to tell, this is, in a sense, where history really got started. The last couple of episodes were about creation, how the world went from nothing to a planet covered in animals and plants and the first two humans. This episode is about what that world was like, and it sets the stage for how it turned into the planet we have today. The story goes from Earth to the center of heaven. Creation is done, the stage is set, and the curtain is about to open on the Garden of Eden. In a couple of books, Timaeus and Critias, written about 360 BC, there's this story of an Athenian statesman who went to Egypt and wanted to find out about ancient history from some priests who lived in the Nile Delta. The priests told him a story about a land that was beyond the Strait of Gibraltar at the entrance to the Mediterranean Sea. They said it was a large island and the home of a great empire. The tale goes on to describe the island. It had a great central plain with mountains along the shoreline. The land had abundant trees. There was lots of food. There were tame and wild animals, including elephants. There's this whole description of a capital city. It was on a low hill about six miles from the coast and surrounded by three moats and three concentric walls. Each wall was covered in a different metal. Inside the city, there were palaces and temples. There was silver and gold all over the place. There were golden statues. The capital had a harbor, and ships came and went, making the place this giant center of trade. But as Timaeus says, quote, There occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and the island of Atlantis disappeared in the depths of the sea. End quote. It's a pretty fantastic story. It has all these details about how rich and powerful and impressive the place was. And then that ending with the earthquake and how everything was lost. Everything but this little bit of description Plato gives. This is one of the most famous stories of a lost city in history. But it's not the only one. There are a lot of others. In ancient history, Herodotus, a Greek historian, talked about the Hyperboreans who lived in a paradise in the far north. In England, there was Lyoness, a land lost beneath the sea off the southwest coast. In France, near Brittany, there was the city of Is, which sank into the sea as well. In the New World, the Spanish and Germans both searched for El Dorado, the city of gold, during the 1500s, and around the same time, a priest who sailed the length of the Amazon with Francisco de Oriana wrote about a land as fertile as Spain and a population large enough to build towns, including one that stretched for 15 miles along the river. There are all these tales of places that once existed, but we only have the details in bits and pieces. We only have the legends and the myths. And it's not like this is something people only did before science came along. Rebuilding the skeletons of dinosaurs and pictures of what people imagined things were like during the Ice Age? Those are the same thing. They're this attempt to discover, to imagine, 
what the past was really like. Now, some of these stories are made up. Uh, the history of Atlantis only comes from Plato, and scholars think it never really existed and was probably just an elaborate analogy he used to explain some philosophy. Some of this stuff probably is fiction, but it's not all fiction. There are real dinosaur fossils. There are clues that some of these stories are about real events. And they make me curious. They make me want to take the clues and piece things back together. All through history, there are these stories. Cities of gold, fountains of youth, lost civilizations, forgotten languages. There are all these mysteries. And the Garden of Eden is the first of them. It's the first of these lost cities in history. Genesis doesn't give a lot of detail about what the Garden of Eden was like, but it does describe some of the geography. Specifically, it talks about one river that flowed out of Eden and then split and went four different directions. And it names the rivers. They were the Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, and Euphrates. Now, if you know any Mideast geography, two of those names should stand out. The third river, the Tigris, and the fourth river, the Euphrates, have been important throughout recorded history, and they're still on our maps today. In fact, sometimes in the Bible, where you read the Euphrates, the original text just says the river, because it was so important, you didn't even need to name it. If you said the river, everyone knew you were talking about the Euphrates. The Tigris and Euphrates are the famous rivers. The other two are harder to find. The first river Genesis mentions is the Pishon, or Pison. I've seen it spelled both ways, and it isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. It might be a word related to a common Hebrew noun meaning gusher, but that's all we have. Genesis says the river flowed through a region called Havilah, and you find a couple of references to that name later in the Bible, and People guess that it used to refer to some territory in Arabia, but that's it. All we can really say about the Pishon is that it crossed through Havilah, an area that was once known for its gold, its onyx, the gemstone, and delium, probably a tree sap used to make perfume. The last river, the Gihon, is a mystery too. The word Gihon might be a Hebrew word that means spurter, but it only shows up later in the Bible as a name for a freshwater spring that was outside the walls of Jerusalem. If you look for Cush, where Genesis says the Gihon flowed, it should be somewhere near Ethiopia, in Africa. The Pishon and Gihon are lost rivers of this lost city, and they add to the mystery of the Garden of Eden. Some people think they were both rivers that used to flow near the Persian Gulf but have dried up. Josephus, the Jewish historian from 2,000 years ago, thought the Pishon was the Ganges in India. Other suggestions include the Indus, the Nile, or some rivers in Turkey. But none of those theories really pan out. Because none of the rivers we see on the map today are the same as the rivers in Eden. You can trace the Tigris and Euphrates from where they start in Turkey and follow them around and through some mountains and then southeast through Syria and Iraq until they flow together about 120 miles before the Persian Gulf. But those aren't the rivers that used to flow out of Eden. They don't even start in the same place. 
they begin 50 miles apart. I mentioned the Garden of Eden was the first of these lost cities, and that's because all this geography, all this detail that Genesis talks about here, none of it is still around today. I don't want to get ahead of things too much, but spoiler alert, the whole world Eden was a part of gets rearranged in a global flood about 1,500 years after this story takes place. Hills and valleys are moved around, the ground is churned up, everything changes. When the water went away, the rivers didn't flow in the same places they used to. The world was all different. And the reason we have a Tigris and Euphrates on our maps today has more to do with humans than with geography. Think about it this way. If there was an earthquake or a flood that completely covered Europe, that caused landslides in the Alps and stirred up the geography, when the water went away, when everyone started to rebuild their homes and cities, they'd have to make new maps, right? And what if, in making those maps, they found a river that was a lot like the Rhine or Po rivers used to be, but the river was different because the valleys had been blocked by landslides or mountains had shifted around, changing the course of the stream. People making the maps might use brand new names, but they might also reuse the old names. That's probably what happened here. After the flood, people gave the new rivers they found the old names of the rivers that used to flow out of Eden. And those are the rivers that we have on our maps. You can't go over, rent a canoe, and paddle up the Tigris to find the Garden of Eden. The mountains and valleys are different. The rivers are different. Genesis does refer to the Garden of Eden as being in the east, presumably meaning east of the Sinai Peninsula where Genesis was written. And people think of the Garden as being near where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers meet in what is today southern Iraq. But that's more tradition than fact. For the geography of what the world used to be like, we only have the brief comments in Genesis to paint the picture. But for the biology, we might have some other clues. When people all around the planet dig down into the ground, they find the remains of animals and plants that were buried and fossilized and preserved. Now, generally speaking, people assume these fossils were buried here and there over long periods of time in a uniform and gradual process. But that's just a theory. An alternative theory with good support suggests most of these fossils formed suddenly during that global flood that occurred about a thousand years before Genesis was written. And if that is the case, these fossils we find give us a window into what the world was like before that flood. Into what the world was like when the Garden of Eden was around. And we find details that Genesis doesn't mention. To begin with, in the late 1800s in France, a fossil was discovered of a dragonfly with a wingspan of about 27 inches. Think about that. Think of a dragonfly with wings that stretch from your shoulder to your fingertips. Today, the largest dragonflies in the world, bigger dragonflies than I've ever seen, are six inches across, less than a quarter the size they used to be. In North America, there are fossils of beavers that were seven and a half feet long. They found bones of elephants 
that might have been 15 and a half feet high at the shoulder. That's taller than even a big elephant would be today. Think of an elephant three times your height. In South America, there's evidence of sloths who grew to be 20 feet long and were around the size of a modern SUV. We've found the remains of sea turtles that were 12 feet long. And there's some bones from penguins who used to be over 5 feet tall. In 1983, the Charleston Airport in South Carolina was expanding its terminal. In the process, the construction workers came across some bones and used a backhoe to pull them from the ground. 30 years later, researchers studying the bones estimated that it came from a bird with a wingspan of 20 to 24 feet. A wingspan that would place it around twice the size of the albatross, the bird with the largest wingspan today. The clues we find in the ground about the world that used to exist say that the animals in Eden could get a lot bigger than they do today. In 2014, a farm worker in southern Argentina stumbled upon the tip of a bone sticking out of the ground, which led to the discovery of around 150 fossils, including a thigh bone bigger than a grown adult. A thigh bone that probably came from an animal who could reach up to the height of a seven-story building. The scale is hard to imagine. The animals who roamed the world Eden was a part of were massive. They were bigger than anything we have on the earth today. Are you starting to get a picture of what the world could have been? You've got these rivers flowing through areas with gold and gems and the smell of perfume in the air. You've got a huge array of animals in all kinds of sizes. And the trees. Maybe because everything was vegetarian, maybe because the world was so fresh and healthy, the trees grew to be enormous. Around the world today, there are still a few big trees. The Pacific Coast redwoods are the tallest, some of which reach up over 350 feet. In Australia, there are eucalyptus trees around 300 feet tall. But the biggest trees are the giant sequoias. They don't get quite as tall as the redwoods, but they can still reach nearly 300 feet, and they have thicker trunks. The bark on these sequoias can be two and a half feet thick. And the largest example, though only 275 feet tall, has a trunk whose diameter is about the length of a bus, and it has enough wood in it to build 120 homes. There are really large trees today, but they don't show up in that many places. The Pacific Coast Redwoods only grow along a patch on the coastline from Southern Oregon to Central California. The giant sequoias only grow in an area of the mountains that is 250 miles long and 15 miles wide. There are a few really big trees in the world today, but there may have been a lot more, and they might have grown in a lot of places. All over the world, we find what's left of ancient forests that have been preserved as petrified wood, wood that fossilized and turned to stone. We find the forests in Ecuador, Greece, and the U.S. We find them in Germany. We find them in Australia. And in some of those places, the petrified wood is of these incredible trees. In Utah, there's evidence trees might have been twice as tall as they are there today. 
In Argentina, there are petrified conifers, think pine trees, that were 11 feet in diameter and more than 300 feet tall. You find similar things across the ocean in Thailand. We get some trees that are like this now, but there used to be more. The world used to be more lush, more inviting, more friendly. Think of that world. Think of a place where there were huge forests that had these trees, trees that grew to be taller than the Statue of Liberty in New York. And with that picture in mind, this brings us back to the story in Genesis. Because along with talking about one river splitting into four different parts, Genesis talks about two trees in that forest. Two trees that get their own names. The first tree named is the Tree of Life. Eating from the Tree of Life would let Adam and Eve live forever. Though, we don't really know much more about it. There are references later in the Bible that suggest this tree grew a different type of fruit each month. But that's about it. We know a lot more about the second tree. The second tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it was the tree of death. When you look around in ancient records, a tree like this comes up all over the place. The Greeks might remember it as having golden apples in the Garden of the Hesperides. The Babylonians have an old cylinder inscription of a palm tree with dates hanging from its branches. The Chinese have a symbol in their writing of a mulberry tree, and the way they use the symbol suggests it's based on this tree from the Garden of Eden. This sort of thing seems to show up pretty often, and it might be because it was at the heart of what happened in the Garden of Eden. But to understand why it was there and where it came from, you have to go back to something else that happened even earlier, to something that started in heaven. Now, this part of the story doesn't come from Genesis. It was actually written down about 800 to 900 years later in a couple of other books in the Bible, but think of it as a prequel. Think of it as a flashback that gives us a bunch of background information that we don't get anywhere else. Like I said, this story was written down about 800 to 900 years after Genesis, and it comes from two Jewish writers, one named Isaiah, who wrote the book Isaiah, and the other named Ezekiel, who wrote the book Ezekiel. Now, each of these books have a lot of stuff in them that I want to get to later, but for now, there's really just two sections that deal with this backstory of what happened in heaven before the events at the beginning of Genesis. In their books, both Isaiah and Ezekiel were writing about various kingdoms around the area, and in the sections I'm talking about, Isaiah is discussing the king of Babylon, an empire to the east of Jerusalem, and Ezekiel is writing about the king of Tyre, a city on the Mediterranean coast. Each of them is talking about these human kings when their stories start sounding strange. They're both talking about these kings, but then they start giving details that don't make sense. The stories seem to be talking about something else, about someone else. Before I go too far here, I should say that there's not universal agreement about this. Some people say that Isaiah and Ezekiel are actually talking about two human kings, and anything that doesn't make sense or doesn't seem to fit 
is just because they're using some exaggerated analogy. That's possible, but it might not be the best explanation. There is another group of scholars, including, for one passage, scholars going back more than 1,700 years, that see something a lot more significant being described here. Isaiah and Ezekiel could be giving us a glimpse, a little window, into where evil came from. I'm going to paraphrase some of this story and put it into my own words, but everything starts in the 28th chapter of Ezekiel. Like I said, Ezekiel is supposedly talking about the king of Tyre, and then he starts describing this being who was wise and beautiful and covered in jewels. And he says, You were the peak of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were covered with precious gems. Your settings and engravings were made of gold. On the day that you were created, they were made for you. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. That reference to guardian cherub is Ezekiel describing an angel who was in direct contact with God. This was someone who served in heaven's palace, right next to God's throne. That's the setting for this whole flashback. I picture it a little like the chief servant or closest friend of God. This is the angel who is the most reliable, the most capable. You get the sense that if we had pictures of God's throne room, this would be the angel who was always in the picture, but a little off to the side. He was the closest thing to the center of the universe without being God himself. But if you notice there, the whole thing Ezekiel is describing, this comes in the past tense. These are all things that were, not things that are, because it was all about to change. Ezekiel continues, and again I'm paraphrasing, You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Everything was perfect. The system was all working. And then something, something in that top angel, that most perfect most reliable angel, something broke. Isaiah fills in more of the details of what exactly happened. First of all, Isaiah gives us a name. Technically, it's more of a description that we use as a name, but Isaiah is the one who gives it. Referring to this angel, Isaiah says, quote, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. End quote. That phrase, O day star, that's actually more like shining one or brilliant one, and it comes from a root word meaning to flash forth light. Isaiah is describing this angel and he's using terms that refer to Venus, the brightest thing in the sky besides the sun and moon. Venus is bright enough that sometimes you can see it at noon and it casts shadows at night. This angel Isaiah is describing was fantastically bright and brilliant and shining and for us, that became his name, because the people who translated the Bible into Latin called him Lightbearer, or Lucifer. Isaiah starts with that description of who he's talking about, this angel who is a bringer of light. And he says, quote, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. 
how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. End quote. Some of the idioms from the Bible get past us today. We don't get the analogies that the first people who read these books would have understood. And the references Ezekiel and Isaiah make to mountains are an example of that. Isaiah refers to the Mount of Assembly and Ezekiel to the Mountain of God. And both of them are referring to this symbol of the location of God's government. Later on, where Isaiah refers to the far reaches of the north, it's the same sort of thing. In the Babylonian mythology Isaiah is using to make his point, they had this belief about a mountain in the north where all the gods met. And Isaiah was using that picture to give us a sense of Lucifer's ambition. Lucifer wanted to put his own throne where God's throne was. This angel was the brightest star in heaven. He was right next to the throne of God. And he started thinking that he could do what God did, that he could have what God had, that he could be equal with God. Lucifer wanted to rule God's universe instead of God. He was the wisest, the most beautiful of the angels, but he wanted more. This is the origin story of evil. This is where it starts. Lucifer effectively invented the idea in heaven when he wanted to overthrow God. Lucifer probably didn't start with an outright rebellion. I mean, he's smart. He's the wisest of the angels here. And so he probably started his war with a little bit of politics, a little bit of trying to get the other angels on his side before he comes out against God. We don't have a lot of detail here, but you get a hint of this idea in Ezekiel. In another part of that passage that I paraphrased earlier, there's this line. Ezekiel says, quote, In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence. End quote. That word, trade, can also be translated slander. In the abundance of your slander, you were filled with violence. Lucifer might have started his rebellion by slandering God to the other angels. Think about what you would do here. I don't mean think about what you would do if you were God or if you were Lucifer. I mean, think about what you would do if you were one of the other angels. How would you know who was right? You've got this king you like. You've got this job you're pretty happy with. But then you start hearing things from the guy who's right next to the king. And the things he's saying worry you. They make you second guess what you thought. Question where your loyalties lie. This guy is in the throne room. He ought to know what's going on, right? At some point, all this backroom dealing, all this dissent, whatever it was, couldn't be tolerated in heaven anymore. And Ezekiel says that Lucifer was cast away from the mountain of God, that the guardian cherub was banished from the midst of the stones of fire, that he was cast to the ground. It's pieced together here, but... By the end of this origin story, this prequel to Genesis, we're back in the Garden of Eden. Because 
Lucifer wasn't destroyed. He was banished. He was exiled. He couldn't be in heaven anymore. So he found his way to the earth. If he couldn't have God's throne directly, he would try another way. And as he came to the earth, he took up residence in that tree of death, in the Garden of Giants. This episode was prologue. It set the stage for the next episode about that one tree that was off limits and Lucifer's backup plan. In the meantime, if you have a question about something from this episode, WiderBible.com has references, links, and show notes with extra information, tangents, and details that didn't fit into the podcast. The website also has a link for asking questions and a place to subscribe, so you can be the first to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.